Hey there, story fans. This week, the Second Story Podcast is busting out of our famous podquarium and coming to you straight from our annual fundraiser at Revolution Brewing in Logan Square. The party has beer, food, and stories, meaning everybody around me is happy and having a grand old time. I'm sitting here with Mary Claire Walther, a Second Story super fan who's going to help me introduce this week's podcast. Mary Claire, say hello. Hello. Mary Claire, how long have you been attending Second Story events? About a year now, I think. How did you come to know Second Story? You know, I have a couple of great friends that are storytellers as well as board members of the organization. Awesome. Now, Mary Claire, have you seen one story that really stands out in your memory? One that you'd maybe like to highlight on the podcast this week? You know, I heard a really great story by Lizzie um, Dzinski um, that I loved that was just really fabulous. Can you tell me what made that story fabulous? Yeah, no. Um, so young people are always looking to set themselves apart, you know, like define themselves in opposition to their classmates and other people and prove to themselves that they can be special. Like, and they'll go like to any lengths to do that, right? Like they will lie in order to make themselves feel special. And it's a really fabulous story. All right. Now, Mary Claire, would you like to perform the honors? Sure. Um, so Second Story is proud to present Lizzie Dzinski. Picture this, a black steamship cutting its way across the Atlantic Ocean. It starts at a slow chug as it leaves the European shore and heads for America. The tearful faces of those left behind obscured by a growing distance. Here they are grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts, uncles, and lifelong neighbors. And the next moment, they are waving arms and then dots and then nothing. Picture a little family. This is my family. A father, pregnant mother, and two solemn, unsmiling children. They are very tired, weighed down by the heartache of leaving one home for another. They seem to have dressed to match their moods. Tattered, earth-toned clothing and bonnets, stiff and black as coal. My mother says I didn't wait long. I was early or late, depending on which country you were from. It had scarcely been a day since they had left Germany before they knew I wouldn't wait, and certainly not the month it would take to arrive on land. So I was born on that ship, right there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with sharks swarming below and a tiny orchestra on the deck above. The whole crew crowded outside my family's cabin, an ear against the wooden door and a hand wrapped around a champagne bottle, just waiting to erupt into applause as my mother and father welcomed me into the world. So, you're a Nazi, Tommy Lynch called out from the other side of the sacred circle. He jumped to his feet, leaving the rest of our fourth grade class cross-legged and dumbfounded on the floor. Our mouths hung open in perfect O's. Nazi, he yelled, Nazi. He was red-faced, and I could feel my cheeks quickly draining of all their color. I hadn't accounted for this unabashed derision, and in my mind, I had two choices. I could fess up, come clean about the fact that I was actually born at Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove, Illinois, <laughs> a painfully ordinary dry land experience, or I could step up my game and really sell this exotic immigrant story. 
perhaps weaving in a heated international debate over my citizenship. Was I German or was I American? Which is to say nothing of the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, could you be a citizen of the sea? I scanned the crowd. I was too panicked to read them accurately. A dumbfounded group of my grade school peers, all of us in matching Catholic school uniforms, rosy-cheeked and pigtailed. Was it a message from God, from the universe, that I was miraculously saved from myself? Mrs. Foreman swooping in from one end of the classroom to, to the other, snatching Tommy by the elbow and leading him out into the hallway and presumably down to the principal's office? No matter whose act it was, I was saved. My weird birth story eclipsed by Tommy's outburst and subsequent ejection from the classroom. We never returned to the story, and I chalked it all up to a story well told, a moment elegantly won. Of course, now, years later, I can only think, why? Why would I, unassuming, frightened of people, painfully shy Lizzie Dzinski, feel compelled to not only insert myself into a ridiculous 19th century story, but tell it so fully to a room of people as if it might impress them. I didn't need some magical escape. My home life was pretty good. My family a little bit harried and crazy in that ordinary way that families of four girls are harried and crazy. It's not like I was being neglected or abused or denied food at home. Everything was exactly the opposite. And yet, throughout my childhood, I continued to lie. Big, brash, wildly sensational lies, a great deal of which were about being born in memorable places or having to do with Nazi Germany. <laughs> Too much Anne Frank, I guess. When I'm in seventh grade, I get caught holding my nose while trying to swim underwater. We're in my neighbor's pool, me and Jackie Mortimer. She's the seventh grade's resident tomboy. She's won every basketball game almost single-handedly for the girls' team and does those annoying grunts on the tennis court you always hear people doing on TV. I don't know why I'm friends with her. I don't even like her. In fact, I'm more afraid of her than anything. She's mean and brash and so much bigger than me that when she elbows me playfully on our walk to school, I stumble right off the sidewalk. So you can understand what I did here. Who among you could look Jackie Mortimer in the eye and admit to being nothing better than a baby? You see, I started to swim away from her. I turned my head and slyly pinched my nose as I slipped underwater. I was pushing my way to the opposite end of the pool when I felt her tug on my ankle. She yanked me back toward her, my hair suddenly pooling around my face in a blur of mousy brown. When she released my leg and I stood up at the shallow end of the pool, I was furious. My tiny body clenched in rage, my swimsuit now askew from her whipping me about underwater, my hair plastered down my face in a, in a wet mask. But there she was, laughing at me. Were you just holding your nose, she asked. Don't you know how to swim? I pawed at my face, pushing my hair out of my eyes as I searched frantically for an answer. Yes, I was plugging my nose, and no, I didn't know how to swim, but I couldn't tell any of this to Jackie Mortimer's red and laughing face. And then it came to me. You shouldn't be laughing, I heard myself say. I had my hands wrapped around the steps of the pool's ladder, Jackie's face visible over my left shoulder. 
It's funny, she cried, sinking down into the water until she was nothing but a smug face floating on its own. I indignantly climbed out of the pool and in one furious motion threw a towel around my middle. Jackie, I started, patting my bare feet across the wooden deck. I was born with only one lung. <laughs> out of the corner of my eye, I saw her head cocked to one side. And the lung I do have, I went on, well, it isn't very good. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I shouldn't even be swimming. I really can't hold my breath underwater like you can because you know I only have one bad lung. <laughs> she didn't say anything, so I went on, irritated that she wasn't handing over at least one measly apology. Her face was perfectly still, staring back at me, waiting, perhaps, for me to dig myself a hole I couldn't climb out of. I have a hard time breathing. I just have bad breath because of it. I can't help it, okay? And then she erupted into laughter, splashing through the water. You do have bad breath, she sputtered between laughs. That is not what I said, I shouted over the chopping water. Annoyed, I backed, I backed away from the pool, sat myself down on a lounger, and decided to take the high road. You're discriminating against people with disabilities, I said. <laughs> There were other lies just like this one, a rare blood disorder, or so I told my classmates, that disguised the fact that while I look like an ordinary sixth grader, I weighed only 34 pounds. <laughs> then later that year, I told the same group about a very exotic form of childhood cancer that stole a beautiful head of full red hair. And then another time, I told my soccer team about my twin who died during childbirth while I, afflicted with the same horrible disorder, went on to be regarded among the medical community as somewhat of a walking miracle. <laughs> I went on like this through most of my grade school years, happily and confidently lying my way into grand stories and out of petty embarrassments, never once suspecting I'd been discovered. I entered the eighth grade completely awkward having everything to do with a summertime growth spurt and an orthodontist-made space between my two front teeth. As a result, the teasing started, and I had enough unwanted attention that I chose instead to attempt invisibility. The lying shifted homeward and drew upon my penchant for weird diseases. I faked sick almost every day. Soon, my mother was pushing me out the door, her last words to me always, you'll feel better once you get to school. There are several tactics I employed for enhancing my faking sick lies. One, running hot water over a thermometer before bringing it to my mother. Two, pressing my forehead to a steaming radiator. And if all else failed, three, claiming I had thrown up in the shower to explain away any post-sick cleanup. But there is a limit to how far these tactics can carry you. So after months of being forced to school, I knew what I had to do. Lizzie, uniform, now, my mother ordered. Her back to me as she stood at the kitchen counter packing her lunch for her work day. My sisters had already cleared out, scrambling from the table just moments earlier. But me? I was slumped over the kitchen table, one arm propping my head up, the other holding my stomach, my face just inches away from the oatmeal my mother had made me. It went untouched, all for effect. But, Mom? I started, my hand instantly starting to sweat against the pill polyester of my pajamas. Mom, I don't feel good. My stomach hurts so bad, and it's been doing this for weeks. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my mother's shoulders tense. I think I should lie down. I think, I think maybe I have ovarian cancer. <laughs> my mother waited a moment. I could see her taking a deep breath, her shoulders rising and falling. You know, maybe we should get a doctor involved if you're really worried about this. My heart stopped. The doctor. Every time I went to the doctor, I felt just like the family dog. Terrified, shaking, wanting badly to make a run for it the moment someone released their grip on me. I could not go to the doctor. My mother now paged through the phone book, presumably for the doctor's phone number. You'll probably want to stay home from school. I think the testing for this could take all day. Remind me to give you an aspirin. Why do I need an aspirin? I heard the testing for ovarian cancer can be extremely painful, she replied. Well, maybe I'll feel better once I get to school, I offered, <laughs> rising from the table and backing away from my mother. I ran upstairs. I dug my uniform out from beneath a pile of clothes on the floor. Funny how earlier that morning, I thought I'd never need it again. And here, I couldn't get it on fast enough to get to school and away from my mother. As I was brushing my teeth, the sound of the front door slamming with each of my sisters racing out to school, I caught my own eye in the mirror. This is it, I thought. I swear I will never, ever tell a lie like this again. And I never did. I swore that day on my grandfather's grave, I wouldn't. And to this day, every time that familiar urge to tell an outrageous lie sneaks up on me, all I need do is think back to his sacrifice. The expedition he launched into the jungles of South America in search of a rare bomb to cure my mother's consumption. His triumphant return, ensuring the recovery of not only my mother, but also her unborn child who sits before you today. And his tragic death, only three days later, due to a delayed case of malaria. All this for me to tarnish the family name telling fantastic lies? I wouldn't dream of it. That was Lizzie Dzinski. What did you do to separate yourself from your classmates to stand out from the crowd? What white lies did you continue to let linger in your life? This story was curated by Bobby Badrisky. Badrisky? Badrisky. Badrisky? Bobby Badrisky. With performance direction from Sarah Rose Graber. And a sound design from Eric Hazen. You can join us at our next live show, a special April Fool's Day performance at City Winery titled No Fool, Stories of Risk and Strategy. This April 1st at 8 p.m., join Second Story and the Harold Washington Trio as we dig into calculated leaps, scary first steps, and stories of beating the fool. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Foundation. We share our stories, so you'll share yours. I'm Ozzie Totten. And this is Second Story. Oh no, you're supposed to say your name. I'm Ozzie Totten. And I'm Mary Claire. And this, this is, is Second, Second Story. Story.